0: The Tom Woods Show, episode 1808. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Hi, everybody. Tom Woods here. Anthony Samaroff. We continues with a discussion of what leads people towards statism. We covered a little bit what might lead them toward libertarianism. But what is it that impels people toward statism and the state? as the driving force of society that has the solutions to our problems. Where does that come from? There are some obvious and some not so obvious answers. We're gonna explore them today. Anthony, welcome back. Thank you for having me back. All right, now we're gonna talk about more or less our own situation, which even though we're surrounded by a lot of Marxists, we are not living in a Marxist society. But there are certain factors at work that tend to push people, if not toward Marxism, then certainly toward statism by which we mean a system in which the state directs i'm just kind of making up this definition as i go along but directs major aspects of society and is viewed as indispensable and tends to be the first recourse people have when there's a problem they think the state must have some way of solving it now there are a lot of factors leading people in that direction even if they say oh marxism is bad or communism is bad however I certainly do need the state to do X, Y, Z, and A, B, and C. So let's talk about what factors do lead people down that road. I certainly have some ideas.
1: Oh, I'm looking forward to hearing them. One thing I definitely think is a factor is people increasingly don't feel capable of meeting the demands of modernity. And for reasons that I'll explain, if you feel that, that you're not capable of meeting the demands of a market economy, you're probably going to be hostile to the market. I think it's important that we account, you know, we always take into account the fact that most of history takes place in scarcity. And for most of history, people did what their parents did, they lived where their parents lived and died where their parents died. And they married who their parents said, and they didn't have all this leisure time that they had to decide how to use constructively and get a sense that they were underachieving because they are playing Minecraft all night when they actually really know they should be learning a skill or something like that. You know, we often hear about the fact that we got the right to vote. But in comparison to these responsibilities, the right to vote is comparatively small. If people feel like they can't actually make good decisions when it comes to these things, they're they're not going to necessarily see their freedom as a gift, but as a burden that's being imposed upon them. And they might feel quite hostile to freedom as the concept, although they don't think of it in those terms. They don't think, well, gee, I really sure do wish that the state would choose who I married or would choose a job for me. But if they're not getting a good job on the market, they're underachieving for their potential, that's going to create a propensity to have a hostile view of the market.
0: Now, there are some obvious categories here, though, that we can talk about. We can talk about the way education shapes the way people think, and we're definitely going to get to that. But one thing that you and I have to deal with as libertarians is that it seems intuitive to people that if I need something done, I just force it to be done. I mean, if I want... Prices to be lowered, we pass a law and the price gets lowered. We use the state because I don't have to sit here and cross my fingers that the market will solve it. I can make sure it's solved because I have this organized instrument of violence that I can use. And so it just seems like if you want something, why don't you pass a law? It just seems to follow.
1: Yeah, and it's a good point. And it's also about the political philosophy that people have of government, which is that the role of government is to be benign and to fix social problems. The philosophy is that if we have a social problem, the government is meant to fix it. That's what we have government for. They don't see it as um, just simply the monopoly over the use of force. Um, The philosophy is that government is meant to solve
0: social problems. So let's talk about what kids learn in school in more detail, because it's not even necessarily that there is a conspiracy where people sat around and said, we're going to write some textbooks that are really going to brainwash these kids. It is that that's the way these people think. They can't imagine there's another way of thinking about it. But also just the very setting of the institution. I mean, it's tax funded. It's got politicians looking at them from the walls in the hallway. I mean, this is not a libertarian paradise here.
1: Right. But then when you look at how school shapes the individual, that's 11 to 13 years. And that is you know, long enough to become a concert pianist, more than long enough to become a surgeon and things like that. But for the main part, the work that kids do in school is not meaningful work. And what I mean by that is, you fill out a worksheet, it goes in the bin, you write an essay, the teacher marks it, if you're lucky, your parents read it and one of your friends, but essentially it's destined for nothing. In some of the best schools, what they would do is say they they would teach geometry and arithmetic in woodwork class. And then people actually get the experience of making a table. Once you make a table, someone can use that table, right? That's how the market works as well. You know, work is meaningful work. It is purpose-oriented work. It's not necessarily destined to just be put in the bin. I think the important thing is when people learn skills, they don't just learn one skill. They learn that they are able to learn a skill. And if you created, a, um, I don't want to say created because that sounds centrally planned as well. I think the kind of schools that we could expect on a market economy would actually give children the opportunity to learn three, four, five skills in that 11 to 13 year period. They're not likely to be hostile to the market because they're competent. And if none of their competencies are marketable to other people, at least they've learned how to learn. So they can go out and learn another meaningful skill. They don't feel like, as many people do, like, I just ask your audience to search their conscience. see if you were sent to a salsa or bachata class tomorrow, or if you already dance, how about going to woodwork class? Can you honestly say that you wouldn't be like terrified of making a mistake. A lot of people come out of school absolutely terrified of making mistakes because they got red crosses over their all over their work. And, you know, you're constantly judged maybe in PE by your peers. Oh, look, you're, no, you're not athletic. Oh, so for me, it's the sociology of school. If we've got schools that when many people do come out of, they can't even get a minimum wage job those people aren't going to have a favorable view of the market. I mean, that's just basically 11 to 13 years of their life's wasted. They can't even get a job. And then there's another category of people who are brainy and they're very intellectual, but they might not be able to use their intellect to provide value to others. So yeah, you can go into university, you can maybe get a job as a professor, or maybe you can get a job in the public sector, but on the market itself, if you had to face the market discipline of being able to use your brains to serve someone else, you might not have been trained to do that by, your, and you, in fact, you almost certainly weren't trained to do that by your education. So you're not going to have a very favorable view of the market either, especially when, you know, people who are not as smart as you are getting paid a lot more than you are, as, uh, you know, doing, you know, being a laborer or being a plumber or doing, doing something practical. And you may have a, A propensity to look down on that kind of like hands on work because you can't do it, but you can think and you you can score higher on an IQ test than that person. So I think these are some of the ways that, you know, not many people can make a living dealing in ideas. There's only a limited market for that. So I think these are some of the more, I don't know if you'd say sociological or psychosocial ways that I think. school shapes people in in, in ways that do not prepare them for the market economy and also will make them hostile
0: to the market well talking about intellectuals or people who make their living dealing in ideas well then you get to the problem identified of course by joseph schumpeter that you have this wealthy market society and it's therefore because of its wealth able to support the existence of a more or less idle intellectual class that spends its time undermining the very foundations of the system that makes their existence possible. And some of that, some of that, we, we can't prove this, but it seems highly likely that it comes from a resentment to the fact that they're intellectuals, and they spent a lot of time in school, and they deserve to be honored and respected by everybody. And some high school dropout, who's the CEO of a billion-dollar corporation, is the one with all the power and influence. Well, that seems unjust to them. People should be listening to them because they have doctoral degrees and stuff.
1: Yeah, and that's exactly right. And that's one of the arguments and and sort of the other argument from Ayn Rand is that what their professions are seen as altruistic. Oh, I'm a teacher. I'm a university lecturer. I'm teaching people. Whereas um, capitalism is all about greed and that CEO is um, selfish and, and, and enriching himself at the on the market you know so there's that other philosophical drive for intellectuals to maybe think that they've got the moral high ground but exactly because when you're what are you going to do with most of these degrees for some of them the only job if they do deal exclusively with ideas the only job as a university lecturer for example or a politician so it's like a pyramid scheme you know each of these Professors is training students year in, year, year out. Well, they can't all be professors, but the number of professors just seems to grow and grow and grow. And it was well observed of Joseph Schumpeter, because what we've seen is, you know, when when you have a society that isn't very affluent, a tax of 10 or 15% on your income amounts to a huge change in your living standards. But as societies become more affluent, A greater and greater percentage of people's income can go to funding these things. And then on top of that, you've got all the public sector workers as well. The public sector just seems to grow and grow and grow. And this presents a challenge to us because how can you reduce the size of government without all of these public sector workers? Protesting and things like that, and if push came to shove, if things got really bad, they might even riot. They might even create violence because they know they're not going to get the same kind of wage or benefits in the in the private sector as they're going to in the public sector. I remember once I was in a, I went to some event. It was you know one of these like maybe it was Skeptic Society or Humanist Society because they had a topic on libertarianism, and I remember you know the hostility to the market. They are actually a there was quite a couple of remarkable things. One is I mentioned that India had massively decreased poverty since it had made market reforms. And someone actually said the stereotypical thing that I thought no one really thinks, but libertarians say that people think, which is someone actually said, yeah, well, poverty may have gone down in India, but inequality has gone through the roof. Oh my gosh. And I, and I felt like, I felt like, oh my God, I felt like, who the hell am I? Are, are you seriously saying you'd rather everyone was more impoverished as long as they were equal? So that was one cringe. And a big, a bigger cringe was at the end, I, I spoke to an older person. He must have been in his 60s. I know, I know he had a job in the public sector his whole life. He said to me, I think that Marx was right. And that capitalists will XYZ. And I just remember thinking in my head, how old are you? Like, I, I know it's a stereotype if you're a social uh, you know, if you're not a socialist when you're 20, you're heartless, if you're still a socialist when you're 40, you're you're brainless. But it's like that meme, you know, mommy, when I grow up, I want to be a socialist. Well, which is it, darling? You know, you can't do it both. So I I was really surprised by that. But also it made sense to me because he has worked in the public sector his whole life. So he's in this kind of echo chamber where the market is seen as this bad thing. So this is another kind of tentacle of the octopus we need to deal with. You have all these basically people who are bribed and paid off by the state to be vassals of the state.
0: And not to mention at every turn, people are reinforced in a statist way of thinking. Absolutely every turn you would have thought that the i knew what was going to happen the years of trump were not going to undermine people's faith in in, in the institutions mm-hmm. because the way they framed their opposition to trump was always it's this one man right they could not bring themselves to think there could be something wrong with a system that generates one man that i have to live in terror of now of course that they were hysterical living in terror of this guy of all people but the point is they always made it about the one person. So if we get rid of the one person, in fact, there's uh, in the US, I'm subjected to this more than you are over in Scotland, but there's a photo, famous photo of Michelle and Barack Obama and the Bushes and the Clintons. And they're all smiling together. And people post that on social media and they say, oh, I wish we could have this world back. You know where there's civility and whatever. And I just thought, my gosh, so what they're actually striving for is they're hoping to have a world back where the establishment sups in happy concord together. Mm. That's not what I want. That's not what you should want. Yeah, and I I really don't know how to explain that in terms of, I don't know.
1: I mean, you, you weren't on the left growing up, but when I was on the left, there was at least some reason to be on the left because I saw the swelling against the war mainly being on the left and the opposition to encroachments and civil liberties coming from the left. But they were a different left. They really did see themselves as radical and anti-establishment. I mean, I can't think of what could be more establishment than supporting the European Union here on this side of the Atlantic. And with these lockdowns the we've gone through i mean it seems like well i i just don't understand what's anti-establishment about these people if they want their overlords to be pictured together in concert i, I like the uh, another one i saw which i thought was pretty funny this is an older one with the caption the original russia collusion and it was uh, churchill fdr yeah
0: stalin together in a photo <laughs> have seen that
1: that is really really good that's that's really good yeah, I just don't know where where where's people's bite? Like, I mean, I think probably if I'd been a libertarian at the time, I would still have found the left insufferable back then. But at least they had some, you know, some fervor, some rebellious spirit at the time. It's I find it hard
0: to see what their redeeming qualities are now. Hey everybody, let's take a quick minute to thank our sponsor, Blinkist. I know there are a lot of folks who love listening to three hour podcasts out there, and that's great doesn't work for me at all. And as a Tom Wood Show listener, you have indicated your preference for learning as much as possible in 30 minutes a day. And that makes you exactly the kind of person Blinkist has in mind. Blinkist takes the key ideas and insights from thousands of nonfiction bestsellers and gathers them together in 15-minute text and audio explainers that help you understand more about the core ideas. That way you can get past the fluff and right to the meat. I like Blinkist because in a one-hour round-trip drive, I can consume the major points and arguments of four books. And that makes my various drives here and there much more productive. Thanks to Blinkist, I recently listened to a very interesting book by Matthew Walker, Why We Sleep. Then we also have libertarian classics on Blinkist, like Milton Friedman's Capitalism and Freedom and Murray Rothbard's For a New Liberty. Right now, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com woods to start your free seven-day trial and get 25% off a Blinkist premium membership. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. Blinkist.com woods to get 25% off and a seven-day free trial. Blinkist.com woods. Well, now I want to ask you really what you think of the human race because I'm thinking about somebody like Rousseau who seems to have thought that People were more or less good, but corrupted by institutions. And I hear from a lot of libertarians that, you know, we would be a lot better off if people hadn't been corrupted by their education or by the influence of this institution or that, and that tends to make them favor policies that we don't favor. Now, it's true, and I know this from my own experience in the classroom on the other side of things as a professor, that if more people were exposed to our ideas, more people would agree with us. There's no Mm. question about that. But still, you get what I'm driving at. Are we dealing with institutions are corrupting them or people are just hardwired not to be libertarians?
1: Well, I mean, there's, yeah. And there's, I guess you could say, in a sense, there's the, and I I use this term in, in the old sense of the word, the kind of liberal view of human nature and the conservative view of human nature at play there and I, I don't know if it's one or the other or both, because obviously people people made these institutions. So it was people who made the institutions. So they did come with people. But definitely, you know, as someone who works in, in mental health and psychology, I do see how how formative our early experiences are on the psyche and how people do get quite fixed later going on. The question is always, look, if they didn't need all this propaganda to prop up the state, it wouldn't exist. It wouldn't need to exist at least. So if people definitely have a propensity to reject the truth and don't need to be indoctrinated, why go to such extraordinary lengths to control the education system, to control the media. That's
0: um, a good point. That is know, a good point, yeah.
1: Why go to all the effort if this is just naturally what you'd get anyway? And then, you know, there's there's one, one aspect of it that we didn't even mention, which is a strategy is to keep a decent number of people on the welfare rolls because they're definitely going to be predisposed to being apologists for the states because quite frankly, their life depends on it and they're scared with the risk of starvation or losing their their house, you know, um why go to all the effort of creating as many paid-off battles as possible without these extreme measures created to prop up your institution, people would be accepting of it anyway. At least I think we have to act on the assumption that things could be better than they are. And in many ways they are better than they are. I mean, we're not living in North career or something like that. So, you know, we can count our blessings and just hope that people see the benefits of freedom
0: and, I guess, do the best we can to show the logic of our views. I think what you're saying about people on welfare also holds for how many people are in the military because almost everybody knows somebody in the US, almost everybody knows somebody personally who's in the military. So if you're critical of the government there, then they, they take that personally. Well, my... My uncle is fighting for your right to right. criticize him, which means you shouldn't criticize him. <laughs> okay. Oh yeah, so, and 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 that reminds me of
1: one point, which I think is is interesting. At least it does kind of enter those sort of conspiracy theory territories of, a a little bit. But let's say that even if it's not a conspiracy, institutions have the incentive to produce the kinds of results. They have the incentive to, if that's not tautological. I've said a couple of times in my podcast. Well, the thing is, if we're told that, you know, by critics of capitalism, oh, the capitalists need an underclass so that they've got a source of cheap labor. But actually, I think it's it's pretty good for capitalists if they've got skilled labor because you know you profit more from skilled labor than unskilled labor. It's really the state that benefits from having an underclass because, on that point, who would go into the military? if they didn't have an underclass to draw from. If people in the lowest economic bracket achieve a middle-class standard of living, or rather a middle-class wage, because standard of living can be furnished by the government, they'll do what middle-class people do, which is they'll take their kids out of public schools and put them in better private schools. Well, that diminishes the need for the state. If they'll get private health insurance, I know you guys don't have socialized healthcare, but you might as well, actually, given that your government spends as much money per head on provision of healthcare as my government does, and doesn't even get an NHS for it. People here get, with a middle class income, will get private healthcare, then they don't need the NHS so much, or in your case, Medicare, Medicaid, they don't need. And, And so we'll go on down the line. When people can afford to provide these services for themselves, they no longer need the state to provide those services. And there goes the argument, well, who will provide for the poor if the poor can provide for themselves? So I guess one really interesting question for people to go and ask their lefty friends and then come back to us with, or indeed their conservative friends, because that's just um, liberalism at the speed, progressivism
0: is driving the speed limit.
1: Yeah, exactly would you rather the state provided healthcare and education and what have you for everyone, or would you rather everyone was wealthy enough to provide that themselves? Like, if you could have a choice, which would you prefer? Because it would be interesting to see how many people say, well, I still think that the government should provide it so that everyone has the same, et cetera, et cetera. It might be an interesting thought experiment. But there's, there's not very much role for the state without large underclass to justify their existence because they're needed to provide services to that demographic.
0: And not to mention, we don't even have the slightest sense of just how sprawling the bureaucracy of the U.S. federal government is. People have no idea all the different agencies. You don't even know they exist. I'm, you know, I'm approaching 50 and I'm still learning about different Mm. departments and offices and whatever that you just have no idea. I mean, there are probably hundreds of them and each is staffed by bureaucracy that simply wants to perpetuate its own existence. And so that means you always use up every dollar of the year's budget so that you can claim you didn't have enough, so that next year you get a bigger budget. If you have money left over, that means you'll get a smaller budget. So you have an interest in spending all the money. You have an interest in behaving in a way that perpetuates the existence of your bureaucracy, period. I guess what I'm trying to get at here is people are inclined to look at the private sector and say, these are all selfish people who are just out for number one. But even though it's the same species we're dealing with, when those very people are in a federal government bureaucracy, those are selfless people pursuing the public good and they're just doing what's best for us. And incidentally, some of those people may indeed feel like they are crusaders for justice and they're doing what's best for them. They may not consciously realize that yes, what I'm doing tends to increase the power and wealth of my agency or something, but it's because in their minds, they've conflated their agency with the public good. And so we have, therefore, an extremely naive way of looking at these kinds of people. And these these bureaucrats have a vested interest, the same way anybody has an interest in pursuing what benefits him, in keeping their particular area of power and privilege going and expanding.
1: Yeah, and I've seen all of this in action. You know, I remember in my early 20s going into getting a grant because, you know, I was self-employed as a piano tutor and this guy in the public service industry was like um, telling me wink, wink, nudge, nudge what I should not tell the government and what I should tell the government. And from his point of view... Of course, he's like being really good. He's helping me get access to whatever benefits that I may or may be entitled to. But from the the perspective of the taxpayer, that's not really very good. And then, you know, I saw the, often the same thing in sort of university with certain lectures, the way that they would engage in terms of just talking about the state, talking about Benefits and social services and things like that, that they really did have that philosophy you're talking about, which is that which is in the public sector is intimately interested in human beings and, you know, helping and being nice, whereas that kind of private sector is evil. That stereotype of using every penny of the budget, when my mum, she grew up in a country where there was national service, when she was in the military, she said that. Other soldiers would say to her, you know, you can't budget like you're doing. You need we need to spend all of our pocket money. Because if we don't spend all of our pocket money, they think we've got enough. If you want to get more pocket money next year, you have to spend it all and say it's not enough. So these aren't just stereotypes. That is what the incentive structure offers. But it, it's all nice being generous with when someone else is paying for it. We have like you said, there's so many departments, there's so many bureaucrats, it's really hard to say what our standard of living would be like if we weren't paying for all these people. Not only that, but those people would have to find a job in the private sector, which means they'd be producing goods and services that people were actually willing to pay for, which, you know, by the law of supply and demand, means that all the goods and services would be cheaper because there'd be more of them. There's more supply. So they'll be cheaper. That's wealth that isn't being created because so many people are pushing papers and audits and lawyers and Lord knows. So I think Yeah, that's- so so
0: not only do we not have the resources, you know, the human capital of those people engaged in the production of goods and services for us, but they're actively thwarting other people yes, <laughs> trying to try to satisfy us. And then, meanwhile, the whole system is portrayed as just looking out for the average person. I mean, when you look at the type of sociopath who gets to the heights of power in the system, they're never that really that smart. If they are, if they're smart, it's this fake twentieth, twenty-first century version of smart. They have a degree, but if I put them up against, you know, anybody in let's say, like early nineteen, if I put them up against John Randolph of Roanoke, I, I just I don't think it's going to be much of a of a contest but I don't look at Bill Clinton or George W Bush and say or Dick Cheney might be a really good example these are people who rose through the system out of a passion for public service who want to improve people's lives I I don't see it that way anyway all right well look I'm glad we hashed this all out uh, what, what is the what are some of the reasons that we we struggle I mean we could we could go on for quite some time about about this. I mean, I do think it's a combination of things. I, yeah. I really, after the COVID thing and observing people willing to have their lives ruined and not even wanting to, you would think they'd be curious. Well, let me look up and see, is there any reason to be optimistic? And none of them do. You know, so my point of bringing that up is just to say that I think it's partly that we're up against forces that are well-organized, that benefit from the existing system, But I also think that, yeah, unfortunately there does seem to be some aspect of human nature that just wants to follow authority and make excuses for it and whatever. I I think so. Yeah, I think that
1: we need to talk about these kinds of arguments because the left is never done making sociological arguments. You know, oh, capitalism makes people greedy and acquisitive, it turns them into a cog in a machine, etc, etc. There's a list of sociological arguments as long as your arm. Oh, it's competitive, it's dog eat dog, it's this, it's that. So if, if we don't actually start Talking in sociological terms as well as economic terms. We're sort of like fighting with one arm tied behind our back.
0: All right. Well, Anthony, thanks so much for sharing your thoughts again today. Yeah, uh, thanks for having me. All right, folks, before we wrap up for today, more creative and interesting people who listen to The Tom Woods Show have started a website that I want to tell you about. It's libertyfund.io. And the pitch at that site is this. Real estate should be part of everyone's portfolio for diversification and inflation protection. The problem with commercial real estate investing has been high barriers to entry, and it's hard to get out once you get in. But the Liberty-loving guys at Liberty Real Estate Fund have created a conservative real estate portfolio strategy that protects against inflation and provides regular monthly cash flow. Then, to improve investor options, they added a new technology wrapper that makes high-quality commercial real estate available to investors worldwide and allows for liquidity, the getting in and out part, not seen with traditional real estate investments. This is a regulated securities offering, and certain restrictions apply. Stop by libertyfund.io for more information and education, and make sure to sign up for their special report, 10 Reasons to Invest in Real Estate on the Blockchain. So once again, the website is libertyfund.io. These are great folks, supporters of The Tom Woods Show, but all you have to do to get a nice shout out from old Woods here for your website is before you create that website, check out tomwoods.com publicity and uh, get your web hosting through my link there. And I'll promote you to my folks and help you out with some free tutorials and other great goodies. So check that out, tomwoods.com publicity. More Anthony Samaroff tomorrow. See you then.